Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and to this episode on the Vasa, which, rather like the Mary Rose and the Titanic, and I suppose the Lusitania, and the Hunley, oh, and the Endurance, and HMS Hood, and, of course, the Terror... All of those could feature in two of our mini-series, because the Vasa is both an iconic ship, as well as having a story that fits into our maritime disasters theme. In fact, I think that the Vasa to us is iconic because of the disaster that ended her career. But it's also important to add that had this magnificent ship survived beyond the first few hundred yards of her maiden voyage in 1628, she would definitely have gone on to be an iconic ship in her own right, as the flag-bearer of the mighty Gustavus Adolphus, King of Sweden. The history of the ship is both simple and complicated. In simple terms, she was built by the King of Sweden between 1626 and 1628, and she sank on her maiden voyage in front of huge crowds that had come to witness her set sail. She was then raised in 1961 with an estimated 95% of her wood intact and countless artefacts beautifully preserved. An absolute time capsule. The complicated story involves trying to understand how a ship that was so nationally significant sank so close to home at a time when the science of shipbuilding was really quite well understood. This was 1628, after all, a period of astonishing scientific and artistic achievement, and the Vasa was, without doubt, the most modern warship that could be imagined in 1628. It's this curious mixture of simple and complicated that makes the Vasa story so engaging, and it's why, if you are ever lucky enough to go and visit the Vasa in Stockholm, you are left with a delicious sense of bewilderment. As you stand and marvel at the carvings, the size, the sheer scale of the achievement of building the Vasa, you can't but wonder how they overlooked the most important bit, the floating bit. To help me get to the bottom of this story in just the same way that a Swedish warship might get to the bottom of a fjord, I spoke with the brilliant Dr Fred Hocker, Director of Research at the Vasa Museum in Stockholm. 
As ever, I hope that you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the excellent Fred. Fred, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure, Sam. Um, so, the Vasa, let's start at the beginning. Why was she built? Uh, Sweden was engaged in a, a war with Poland-Lithuania, uh, partly a dynastic struggle between the king of Sweden, Gustav Adolf, uh, and his first cousin, Zygmunt, who was the king of Poland and had formerly been the king of Sweden. Uh, this was part of a more a broader program of Swedish expansion that had been going on since Gustav Adolf came to the throne. Uh, and as part of that expansion, he was overhauling the military. Uh, he'd standardized the army on new weapons and new tactics, and he was starting the same process with the Navy to replace the Navy he'd inherited from his father uh, with new ships. And because he had a different idea of how you would use a Navy, he wasn't just replacing like with like. He was building new kinds of ships for a, a new tactical model of where naval warfare was going. So Vasa was the first of a projected class of big, heavily armed gun platforms. Yeah. How were those ships new compared with what had gone before? Well, the, the typical Swedish warship of the first quarter of the 17th century uh, had one deck uh, of guns, uh, usually 12-pounders or 6-pounders, a cannon that fired a, a ball that weighed 12 pounds or 6 pounds, 5 kilograms, 3 kilograms. Uh, and Gustav Adolf saw the future of naval warfare as being artillery duels before between really heavily armed platforms. Uh, and so Vasa, instead of having that single deck of six pounders or 12 pounders, had two full gun decks. And the king ordered an entirely new armament for the ship of 24 pounder guns, which made it essentially four times the firepower of what had been a typical ship before that. Oh, that's extraordinary. Uh, who was he expecting to fight? Well, uh, the immediate enemy in the 1620s was Poland-Lithuania, although Poland uh, did not have a very big navy. They briefly had uh, a navy in the 1620s that was never more than about 10 ships. Um, they did fight one naval battle between Sweden and Poland, which was Sweden's only naval victory before the 20th century, uh, in which they defeated... <laughs> Where was the Polish naval base? Sorry to interrupt. Well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm fascinated. It, it was uh, in the Bay of Gdańsk, uh, and, uh, in, and there were several ports that it was using uh, between Gdańsk, uh, a place called Putsk, uh, and then uh, modern-day Gdynia is in uh, very close to where that naval battle was, at a place called Oliva. So, but the, basically the Bay of Gdańsk. Hmm. And, and the Swedish naval power, what was the geography of that? Where were the ships built and, and kept? Um, for a long time, from the time that this modern Swedish Navy was formed uh, exactly 500 years ago, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Swedish Navy this year, um, ships had been built where the trees grew. And so ships were built all over Sweden and even sometimes in Finland, which was then a part of Sweden. Uh, but uh, starting in about 1618, uh, the king and his administrators decided it was more cost-effective to centralize construction really into just two shipyards. Uh, the Royal Navy Yard, which had formerly been a maintenance facility in Stockholm, uh, and then there was a private yard down in a town called Vestervik that also built a number of ships. Uh, and so most of the construction of bigger ships took place in those, places, in those two places, with occasionally purchasing ships uh, from abroad. In 1624, the Navy had bought um, uh, a bunch of ships in the Netherlands, small armed merchantmen. And was the, the Swedish king, Gustav, was he um, 
kind of closely engaged in the building of his ships or was it done remotely is it was it, it was a personal passion of his uh he was closely engaged in military technology i think is the best way to put it he was uh, a very at all yeah he was a very keen artillerist uh, and so he was directly involved in the, the design and testing of new types of cannon. Uh, and in fact, we know that the, the new type of gun that was used to arm Vasa, uh, many of those guns were personally proofed by the king at the proving range. Um, that, that, I, if you're the manufacturer, to have the king be the one to fire the very first test round has got to focus your attention, I think. Uh, uh, and so he was very interested in artillery. Uh, and he uh, and also in the idea of standardized weaponry. So he had uh, been involved in trying to reorganize the artillery train on a few standardized types instead of this wild variation that had occurred in the 7th, 16th century. Um, and he thought to do the same thing with the Navy. And he wasn't very directly involved in ship design other than saying, I want this ship to carry this many guns. Um, but he didn't. Uh, metal very much in the design process. He established a specification for what he wanted. Uh, and then he was much more engaged in exactly what kinds of guns uh, might be uh, designed and built. And so this uh, Vasa was armed with a new type of lightweight 24 pounder gun that was part of the, the new train of artillery, the new artillery system that had been introduced in the 1620s. For that standardization, did they have a central location that made all of the weapons in the same place and then made the ammunition in the same place to the same um, requirements? Uh, that's that's interesting. Um, the guns were standardized quite well. The ammunition, not so well. Uh, we can see that from the surviving uh, examples. Uh, all bronze artillery, uh, which was most of the, the high-end armament for big capital ships, was cast in a, uh, the same foundry in downtown Stockholm. Well, it's downtown Stockholm today um, at a place called Brunkeberg. The And so those guns were manufactured to very tight tolerances. The, the type of gun that was Voss's main armament, uh, there are 12 or 13 examples from that run that survive, and they all have the same bore diameter to within about a millimeter, which is a very tight manufacturing tolerance given the methods in use at the time, uh, which meant that you could be sure that any 12 or 24 pound cannonball that you manufactured was going to work. You didn't have to carefully select your ammunition. Um, but we do have 600 cannonballs of that size on Vasa, and they vary quite a bit. Um, they're supposed to weigh 24 pounds, but they actually vary between 22 and 26 pounds. Um, and they vary in diameter by almost a centimeter. <laughs> that's, a, that's a problem. Uh, well, it could be. Um, we, we, we built a, a copy of uh, one of these guns and test fired it a lot uh, about seven, eight years ago. Uh, and we also cast uh, ammunition that matched the same size variation. And what we discovered is that for the same powder charge, the difference in muzzle velocity and thus range between the smallest and largest cannonballs about 10%, uh, which is not insignificant. Um, and it does throw off your accuracy a little bit. Uh, to do that. So the, and I'm not entirely sure uh, exactly what's going on there, except that the, I, the molds that they were using to make the cannonballs themselves were not terribly consistent. Uh, we can see that they're made in two-part molds, uh, a metal mold. 
uh, and they're not very consistent. Whereas the process of gun founding and boring uh, was a little bit more consistent. Now, if any of our listeners have had uh, have got a vision of what the Vasa looks like, then um, this this question is is for them. And for those of you who don't know what it looks like, let me just tell you that it's completely covered in the most extraordinary carvings. So, what was going on there? Is he is is the Vasa an unusually heavily decorated ship for the Swedish naval power? Uh, no, it's not unusually decorated uh, for for its period. Um, capital warships, the the, uh, the bigger and more impressive the ship was, the more heavily it was decorated. Um, there's a, a contemporary, very famous English ship, Sovereign of the Seas, or Royal Sovereign, that famously was very heavily decorated and that the cost of the decoration got Charles I into some hot water. Uh, but the uh, decoration is not decoration in the sense that we understand it today. Uh, every warship ever built has two equally important functions, a physical function and a metaphysical function. The physical function is to be a gun platform or nowadays a floating airport or missile silo. Uh, and that, that, that has a, stack, a tactical and strategic meaning and value. But it also has a metaphysical role, uh, and that is to be a visible, present symbol or expression of the owner's ambition war aims, policy, self-image. And it fulfills that through its appearance and existence. And so the way a a warship looks is part of its function. Nowadays, we paint warships gray. And partly that started out because of uh, camouflage, but radar, frankly, doesn't care what color it's painted. Um, But that we paint them gray to let you know it's a warship. Uh, It makes it look menacing. It It reinforces when somebody sees it what its function is. And an important part of how you use a navy uh, is not always warlike. It is sending your ships to other people's ports uh, to remind your enemies not to mess with you, to remind your allies that you're there to support them. Um, In the 17th century, you accomplished that part of the mission in a very different way. And so all of those carvings on the outside are telling a story in a vocabulary that most educated people would be familiar with because it's the same way you use sculptures in churches or on palace facades, that sort of thing, that the, all of those figures have meaning. Uh, so at the bow of Vasa, you have uh, 20 Roman emperors. Uh, in chronological order, chronological order, the first 20 from do they Tib- get Did they get the order right? Yes, they do. And we can tell because there's a little, the names are written on them, from Tiberius to Septimius Severus. Uh, the first and greatest of the Roman emperors is missing. That would be Augustus. His place in the chronological sequence is taken by the figurehead lion, which was a symbol of the king of Sweden. And if you take the king's name, Gustavus, uh, you can rearrange the letters to spell Augustus. And so Gustav Adolf presented himself very often as the new Augustus of the new Rome. And so that message there very clearly is Sweden is the new Rome, the new great power in Europe. And Gustav Adolf is the new Augustus, the great king, the great emperor. Um, at the stern, you have the ship's name. Is Nowhere on the ship is the word Vasa written. But we know it's the ship's name because it's presented as a sculpture all over the ship. Uh, Vasa is the Swedish word that means a bundle of sticks. 
um, or a fascine, we would say in English. It's actually a transliteration into Swedish of a Latin word, fasces, uh, the bundle of sticks that was used in ancient Rome to, uh, as a symbol of uh, power. Uh, and so it was the heraldic symbol that the king's family had used since the Middle Ages. So he's naming the ship after his own family. And so that's a very clear message. Um, you have uh, the royal coat of arms tells you who owns the ship. And at the top of the stern, there is a very complicated allegory that explains why the ship was built. You have a banner that says G-A-R-S. Uh, just above the banner, there are 11 little figures of people, uh, busts. Uh, and they're dressed, some are like, dressed like peasants, some are dressed like nobles, some are dressed like priests, some are dressed like uh, military officers. Um, above that is a young man with his arms outstretched over them, leaning on them. And two griffins are holding a crown over that young man's head. And that's a message to Gustav Adolf's opponent, Zygmunt Vasa, the king of Poland, over who really was the king of Sweden. G-A-R-S is the abbreviation for Gustavus Adolphus Rex Suecorum, Gustav Adolf, King of the Swedes. Uh, the 11 people are the people of Sweden. They are the Swedes. They represent the four estates of Swedish society, the nobility, the peasants, the clergy, the military. The young man is Gustav Adolf, who came to the throne as a teenager, and he is both protecting his people, and because he's leaning forward on them, they are supporting him. The griffin was the personal heraldic symbol of his father, Carl IX, who had deposed Zygmunt in Sweden. And so he is receiving the crown from his father. And that means he is saying to Zygmunt, I am the, the legal heir to the Swedish throne, and you never will be. Other sculptures around the ship reinforce that message. Um, some of them are similarly high-minded allegories from classical mythology. Uh, others are just dirty jokes. That uh, there's a row of mermaids and mermen uh, along the tops of the quarter galleries, uh, and in a bit of whimsy, they're dressed like everyday people because you know, mermaid society also needs doctors and lawyers and plumbers and carpenters, um, and so one of them is dressed like a Catholic priest with the four-cornered uh, biretta, the the bobble hat that uh, is a symbol of uh, the priesthood in, in the Catholic religion. Uh, but if you look at this uh, priest. He has rather effeminate features, and he has breasts like the mermaid next to him. And it's a joke about uh, about the Catholics, who were the enemy of Luther and Sweden. You know, a Catholic priest isn't a real man because he can't father children. Uh, at the bow of the ship, uh, you have a really jingoistic sculpture of a Polish nobleman who's crouching under a table. Uh, and, and in the 17th century, in Poland, if uh, if you were a noble and behaved badly, you had bad manners, if you slandered someone else or uh, acted out, then the punishment was you had to crawl under the dinner table and bark like a dog to admit that you had the manners of a dog. And so this nobleman is doing that. And he's a caricature of a Polish noble wearing the national costume and with the what was already then a very typical haircut and big handlebar mustache. Um, that sculpture is also the support block for the cathead, the crane that you use for raising the anchor. So every time you are raising the anchor, you are crushing the enemy with a ton and a half of iron. 
And find, <laughs> That's very good. But the best part is that those sculptures don't face, there are two of them, one on each side, one under each cat head. They don't face out. You can't see them if you're the general public. You can only see them if you're part of the crew. And because of where they're placed, the one place where you can look that Polish nobleman in the eye is when you're sitting on the ship's toilet. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So That's it. It, it, the sculptures aren't decoration. They have, they have, most of them have meaning that are helping to fulfill that the ship's metaphysical function. Yeah. Um, extraordinary stuff. Do we know much about the sculptors who did the carvings? We do because they, they hired the best known sculptors at, who were working in Sweden at the time. Um, two of them we can recognize because other work they carved survives in churches and palaces. Uh, we also know from historical records who some of them were. The, 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 the account books for the shipyard survive. Uh, and so the main carver was a German named Morten Redmer. Uh, he seems to have done all of the really important symbolic sculptures that are tied up with the imagery of kingship and, uh, and leadership. And he has a very distinctive style. Um, oh, you can always recognize all of his uh, human figures because they all have the same face. I think he could only carve one face. And it's a guy with uh, really prominent cheekbones and a beaky nose and deep sunken eyes uh, and a beard. It might be how he looked. I don't know. I was going to uh, say, I've, I've, my guess is he's carving himself. He's, he's carving himself. And then uh, another sculptor we know is a Dutch carver, Johan Taysen. Uh, and his sculptures are very different. His faces are all round, apple-cheeked young men. Uh, so, uh, and he and he carves in a very different style. Morton Redbird is carving in a very 
North German style, but uh, Taysen is carving in a very Flemish Dutch style. Um, and we know the names of a few other carvers as well. Those are the two whose work we can recognize directly from the, the style in the ship. It's interesting, I mean, to put so much um, kind of interest and care into what your sculptors are saying and how they're positioned, I'm surprised they weren't working with Swedish sculptors. Well, um, did they mind they had German style sculptors on their ship? Well, no, and you, and you have to remember that Gustav Adolf himself was half German, that, that his mother was German and his father was a German duke, or his grandfather was a German duke. Um, so, and, and this is also a period from the beginning of the 17th century, Sweden had actively recruited foreign experts uh, in lots of different technical fields uh, to help build this great military machine that the Swedes were engaged in constructing. Uh, and so the shipwrights who built the ship, the master shipwright was Dutch. About half the shipwrights who built the ship were Dutch. Um, they recruit The man who was in charge of the gun foundry that made the bronze guns uh, came from Basel in Switzerland. Um, uh, and they bought a lot of the raw materials abroad. Uh, there was no hesitation in using um, foreigners. In fact, some of the raw materials for Vasa come from Polish forests, uh, using, using the enemy's resources against him. Uh, by working with uh, neutral Dutch middlemen who were the merchants as the middlemen. Um, and so, no, that wasn't uh, very strange. Um, the, the modern ideas we have of nationalism and patriotism really aren't very well formulated at this point. And, and it, there's a very fluid mix of expertise traveling all over uh, Europe. People are recruited from one country to another, in Italy from one city-state to another, um, and it's not seen as a handicap that you were, or any kind of detriment that you were born in a foreign country. Sweden's biggest enemy during the 17th century was traditionally Denmark, but Voss's captain was a Dane who had come to Swedish service 25 years earlier. Um, and, and so the, uh, a large part of the, what we call the great power period in Sweden, the 17th century, when Sweden was a major regional military power. Uh, is based on foreign capital, uh, foreign expertise that was actively recruited by the state because Sweden had such a small population. You just didn't have, if you wanted to build a big Navy, there weren't simply, there just weren't enough shipwrights in Sweden to do that. You had to recruit people from abroad. So I mean, mentioning there that they were recruiting people abroad to make sure they had, they, you know, they brought in all of this, this um, wonderful knowledge and experience. What happened? How did, how did they build a ship which couldn't sail upright? Well, um, the problem that Vasa has, uh, that it's tender or crank, it's not very stable, is actually a very common problem for big ships in the 17th century. Um, and, the, and the underlying reason for that is that nowadays, nowadays we can avoid that for the most part because we have mathematical tools to analyze a design on paper before you cut any metal. Uh, and so you can, and the same thing is done with airplanes. And so you have a reasonably good idea of the performance of something before you ever make it. Uh, but those mathematical tools didn't exist yet. Um, the ones you need for designing a ship uh, require calculus, hadn't been discovered yet, uh, and an accurate mathematical model of stability. That, was, that didn't occur until the 1750s. And so the design process was really empirical based on your experience of building 
something, whether you were a shipbuilder or a fortification builder or a gunsmith. Uh, and if you wanted to change it, you made incremental changes on the basis of what you knew already worked. If you're building a ship with one deck of guns, building a ship that's armed with guns is a challenge because you're putting a lot of weight high up in the ship, the guns. Um, and that's not ideal. You want the center of gravity to be relatively low, which means you want a lot of weight in the bottom of the ship. That's why we put ballast in ships. Um, but if you put a lot of weight up on the deck, uh, that, that becomes slightly tricky. If you're building a ship with one deck of guns, that compromise is relatively easy to achieve. There are a lot of solutions uh, that will all work. Uh, that you can still make a fairly, you can make a relatively good ship with a lot of different design choices. Once you go to two decks of guns, that's an awful lot of weight above the waterline. The the range of possibilities that will actually work becomes very very small. You can think of it as the um, the designer is a, a marksman aiming at a target, uh, trying, and the target is a good ship. If he's building a ship with one gun deck. The target is really big and not very far away. It's not hard to hit it. If you're building a ship with two full decks of guns, all of a sudden that target is much smaller and farther away. It's very hard to hit it straight off the drawing board. And so what often happened in the 17th century with ships with multiple gun decks is that um, the ship was, you had to build it and sail it and see. Uh, and so the ship when first built would be not necessarily very good. You would sail it in protected circumstances to get an idea of what the problems might be and then take it back to the shipyard and fix it. And there were several different well-understood fixes that could handle the problem of an unstable ship. Um, and so we know that a lot of the big warships built for the Royal Navy uh, in England in the 17th century had to be altered, rebuilt, cut down, uh, after their initial trials to make them better. So Vasu is no different in, in that regard, but in a matter of degree, it was simply so much too bad that it never, it didn't survive long enough to get to the fixing it stage. Um, and the fundamental problem is that there's too much weight high up in the ship, but it's not the guns that are the problem. It's the ship itself. Uh, the upper part of the ship, the part above the waterline, is too tall uh, and too heavily built, regardless of what guns you put on the on the decks. It needs to be lower and a little bit more lightly built. Why it is that way, that would be psychoarchaeology in the designer's head, and there's no way to get there. Um, but that is that is, that is basically the problem, and they understood it at the time. There was an inquest after the sinking, and the panel of experts captains and riggers and other builders discussed it. And they all understood, even if the math didn't exist to quantify stability, they correctly understood what the forces at work were and the relationships between them. And they came to the conclusion that the problem was that the ship was too tall and heavily built above the waterline. Or as one another one put it, there wasn't enough ship under the water to carry amount, the amount of ship above the water. He said the ship didn't have enough belly. And with modern analytical tools, we can do a lot of analysis and basically get to exactly that same answer, that there's too much ship above the water for the amount that's in the water. Yeah. 
it's a lovely way of putting it, isn't it? It really makes it makes it very clear. Right. Um, well, one thing that I might point out is that uh, your ability to design, to design ships is based very much on experience. And the designer of Osa had been building ships for a quarter century. But as far as we know, he had never built a ship with two gun decks before Vasa. So he, he had no fr personal frame of reference on which to base the design. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, let's kind of um, move forward. I, I'm going I'm to skip the recovery because I think that's got an entire podcast in its, in its own right. Um, I would just say that you, know, you, you have raised the ship. It's completely extraordinary. I'll mention all of this in the introduction. Um, and have uh, uncovered the most remarkable artifacts. Um, could you take us through a couple of your favorite artifacts? Huh. Uh, let's see. I always answer that question because it is a question I get fairly often in that my favorite artifacts are whatever the ones are that I'm working on right now. Because <laughs> uh, we, we go through the collection uh, and, and as part of a structured research program. So just at the moment, um, what we're working on are the clothing and shoes uh, found on board, which we think is the one of, if not the largest collection of ordinary people's everyday clothing from before 1700. Uh, because we have a, about 12,000 textile and leather fragments, uh, in some cases, whole garments, whole shoes, whole boots, in other cases, very fragmentary remains. And that's material that's fascinating in and of itself. I'm interested in clothing, um, but it's unique. Ordinary people's clothing doesn't survive. It's comprehensive. So we get to see a lot of variation. So we, the, the traditional picture of how Swedes looked in the 1620s is that most peasant Swedes are wearing uh, brown or gray, undyed, homespun clothing. We haven't found any homespun cloth yet. <laughs> that everything we have is is quite professionally made cloth, even on conscripts. Uh, and there's every color you can imagine that's available in the 17th century, red, purple, blue, black. Um, and those are just the, the colors that survive really well underwater. Uh, we can presume that colors that don't survive very well underwater, like yellow, green, are also present. Um, and so that material is, uh, is is fascinating on a number of fronts. And it's something that provides us access to Sweden as a whole. Uh, the crew of Vasa were mostly conscripts. The Navy expected about 85% of the crew to be conscripts who were not provided with uniforms or clothing. So they showed up in the clothing they own. So what we have is a cross section of uh, the people living uh, in coastal districts in Sweden and Finland. Um, because the Navy formally allowed sailors to have their wives on board as long as the ship was in home waters. There's also women's clothing present. And of the 15, 16 skeletons found on the ship, two of them are women. Uh, so we have not just young men. We have a good age range from children up to people you know, my age, in their 60s. Um, and we have a you know, big size range as well. So we have a really good cross-section. So I think that material is uh, is fascinating. Um, it, and it, it partly cause it's unusual, partly cause of the story it tells. Mm -hmm. I think we should do a separate podcast on the shoes of Vasa. Uh, well, you'd be welcome to do that. And I'd be happy to put you in touch with uh, Al Seguto, the shoe expert who can, who can do that. 
or, or right, you were telling, wanna... telling me about this few expert. Tell, um, tell, tell, tell me again for our listeners. Oh. Who's coming to the Vasa to work? Oh, tomorrow, uh, Al Seguto, uh, who was the uh, the master uh, shoemaker, cord wainer at uh, Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia for 30 years, uh, is uh, has probably also has, and has looked at uh, virtually all of the surviving 17th century shoes in the world as part of his research in order to be able to recreate modern copies. Uh, it, we've uh, recruited him to look at all of the shoe remains. And he's he's been here a couple of times already to do uh, what we call the reconnaissance phase, which is a very quick going through the whole collection to get an idea of how much material there is and what the workload will be to record it in detail. So he's arriving tomorrow. His assistant will come later in the week uh, and they'll be here for a month and a half going through all of the shoes uh, to do a detailed catalog uh, of all the different kinds of shoes and boots uh, that we have on the ship. Well, I tell you what, um, let's let's get get him on the podcast. We'll find out what he's discovered in six in six weeks time. Uh, Fred, thank you very much. I know we've only covered a small amount of the magnificent material you've got there, but um, I promise our listeners uh, we will be back, and I want to get out there and actually do some filming as well. So, thank you very much for your time. But it's going to be part one of I hope several. Well, my pleasure, and uh, we're always happy to tell people about what we're doing at the Vasa Museum, and uh, we hope people will come and see it for themselves. And I'll look forward to showing you around when you and a you and a camera can come. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, first of all, please don't let this be the last thing that you do to enjoy our content. Yes, please listen to the back catalogue of podcasts. Find out about iconic ships, terrible shipwrecks, famous naval battles, whaling, maritime innovation, navigation, technology, whatever it might be. But also please check out the brilliant video content we've been producing for a couple of years now. One of our animations recently went viral on Instagram and has been seen 4,138,000 times. A curious propeller from the 19th century. You can find all of this on the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube page. The Mariner's Mirror podcast also comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. You can find those brilliant institutions at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk for Lloyd's Register and for the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up and become part of a wonderful and friendly society that has committed itself to understanding and sharing the world's maritime past for well over a century. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.